Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. One of the things that I realized would be a good practice for myself is really leaning into dealing with uncertainty um, and viewing uncertainty for what it is and not like always thinking that it's about the risk of bad things happening. And what really solidified that for me was playing travel roulette. I don't know if you've heard about this before. Travel roulette is basically when you pack a bag, you go to the airport without a destination in mind. And upon arrival at the airport, you book a ticket for under 500 bucks and you go. And I remember having a lot of anxiety, but I figured, you know, this, um, this would be a good thing. Even if things turn out bad, it'd be good for developing resilience and doing this, like being in the moment and roll with things thing that my husband does. And that trip turned out way better than anything I could have ever planned. And that's when I realized, you know, we, we get into this habit of, you know, this uh, like reaction of fear whenever uncertainty comes up because we're so conditioned to fear the bad things that may happen that we forget that uncertainty is also the possibility of wonderful things happening. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Michelle, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. So you were one of a long line of amazing people who has been referred to us by our uh, mutual friend and former unmistakable creative guest, Sarah Peck. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have you here. And I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up? And what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you made in your life and your career? Mm, yeah. So I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in a suburb largely populated by immigrant families. And so my my parents are both immigrants. They immigrated from the Philippines, though, interestingly enough, not at the same time. So they met here in the States. And I'd say that had a huge influence on uh, just my entire arc. So my dad, I feel like a very typical immigrant story. He grew up in a farming community in the Philippines and his education and his his grit and his willingness to work hard was his ticket out of that type of life. And then my mom, um, actually, I should say my dad immigrated here as an adult. And then my mom um, actually immigrated to the U.S. when she was 12. So she spent a number of her formative years here and as a result, my parents have very different uh, parenting philosophies. So my mom had a tiger mom who 
basically told her everything she could and could not do. To this day, my mom doesn't know how to ride a bike because my grandmother said it was not ladylike for her to do. And so as a result, my mom decided to parent the way that uh, she was not parented. She wanted to do all of the things that her mom did not do. And so she's very encouraging, really wanted uh, to help me and my sister find our passions and be able to follow that. Whereas my dad, on the other hand, was more, I think, like more typical immigrant, like, you know, the path to success is, this is my best impression of my dad, the path to success is to study hard, go to college, graduate, and then get that good job. I have air quotes around good job. And I think as a result of growing up in a largely immigrant community, that that common narrative that my dad had won out. Uh, I think it also doesn't help that I'm a firstborn. So I felt that responsibility to do the right thing and a little bit of the, the risk averseness that comes uh, with that. Like, oh, I, I need to be the one who who does all the right things, who does all the things that I'm supposed to do. And it also probably didn't help that I was, I was good at it. I was good at that plan, like go to school, study hard. I still remember when I was in the first grade, I came home with my first report card and I had good grades. And I remember my dad kneeling in front of me in our family kitchen saying, wow, wow, these are such good grades. You're so smart. You should go to Stanford, which is like the closest college. So not only was it, you know, really great school, but also, you know, immigrant parents' dreams. Let me keep my kid close to home. And as a first grader, I was like, okay, dad, that sounds like a great idea. And and did all that. So I, I worked hard in school. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I got into Stanford. I, okay, this was the one departure from the plan. I was not a doctor or a lawyer, did not study medicine or law. <laughs> I went a little riskier of a route. I studied engineering, decision engineering to be precise, and then went out and got that, you know, quote unquote, good job in management consulting. And I thought I had made it. Right. Those are all the things we're supposed to do. And I quickly realized that that was not it. That was that was not all I had to do is not even the it of, uh, you know, having made it because I was miserable. And so I feel like in in the 15 years since then, it's been a lot of just reconciling that. I think a very common narrative that many people grow up with, like oh, study hard, go to school, get a good job. And this other piece that my mom tried to instill in me, um, but didn't start kind of winning out or having that voice in my head until I was in that job. I was miserable and thought, wait a minute, what now? Wow. Okay. That raises numerous questions. Uh, one, you know, when you have one parent who, partially grew up here, particularly in formative years, and another who immigrated, how does uh, preservation and heritage of culture work in that instance? Because I'm the opposite of that in the sense that both my parents um, were, were immigrants. Um, both of them were raised in India. So there is some sense of, of preservation of heritage of culture. So I wonder how that happens in a situation like this. And yeah. what parts of it are lost because of that? Well, I think uh, one thing I'll say I... 
I lost the language or actually I didn't lose it because I never had it. My parents made an intentional decision not to teach my sister and I um, any of the native Philippine languages they knew. I think for my dad, him immigrating as an adult, I think he caught a lot of flack for his accent. And so he wanted us to have perfect like native English growing up. Um, but as far as the cultural heritage, I think I, I had the great fortune, again, living in an immigrant community with also a quite large, especially at our church, Filipino population. And so I felt like I learned, I learned a lot of those folk songs, folk uh, dances, um, cultural things that were layered into our religion, actually outside of the home, which is kind of interesting for me to, to realize now that you asked the question, because now as a mother um, and my, my husband and I come from two different cultural heritages, we're also actively thinking about this right now too. What are the things we want to pass on? And what are the things that we don't? Like, I know my mom did not want to pass on the tiger mom-ishness. <laughs> um, and I think that was, that was great for her. But I think I uh, lost some things, too. It's, it's interesting because um, I think I can relate to this narrative, uh, particularly when you guys from your dad, because it was pretty much the one that that I was given, but unlike yourself, I sucked at it. I was so bad at it that I was like, okay, there's no way that this is going to work. I can't do this anymore. Um, but I wonder, you said you have a, have a sister. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like with my parents, I was the experiment. Threw <laughs> 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 everything up and basically fix it with my sister. So, you know, I remember my dad didn't understand that when you're in seventh grade, kids are popular and you get made fun of for wearing shitty clothes until we were in San Antonio, Texas, and some kid that I didn't know in a town 200 miles away from where we were started making fun of my crappy shoes from Payless. And my dad said, do you know that kid? I said, I don't know that kid at all. We're 200 miles from home. And he, he finally got a sense for it. But with my mm-hmm. sister, it was like, oh, yeah, whatever. We've dealt with this before. Because I think that it was such a, an anomaly to them to have to deal with these things because it was just so foreign to them. And I wonder uh, what kind of an experience it was for your sibling when I came to this. I mean, I, I imagine she, um, well, I'll say the first thing that comes to mind when I think about what my sister's experience must have been like, and even uh, some of my cousins, because so since my mom immigrated when she was younger, a lot of her siblings are here in the Bay Area as well. Um, and I had a lot of cousins around growing up. I was the second oldest. And I remember my older cousin, once we were adults, saying, Michelle, do you realize how difficult it was growing up with you? And um, again, I think it was is part of blessing and a curse that I was good at that narrative, right? Of doing doing well in school. I think, thankfully for um, my sister, we had my mom, who and my sister was not not good at like all those things that um, my dad kind of laid out. And again, since my mom had had the tiger mom experience with her mom, I think uh, was able to be more supportive and encouraging for my sister as my sister tried to carve out what, what does future look like for her. But I think it also made me realize, you know, one of the reasons why 
I think a lot of people try to, or at least especially the people who, who sometimes are kind of good at the plan, get stuck on it is because if you're good at it, it's easy. It's a plan. You do this step, then this step, then this step, then this step. Maybe after you graduate and get that good job, then you go on to get your MBA, which I think both of us did. Uh, and going this, this path of following your passions or following what makes you happy is so much more unstructured. And I think that's also part of the reason why my mom, even though she had that intention for us, uh, it was a lot harder to follow that path because you kind of have to chart it for yourself, which is kind of the reason why I've become so passionate about this decision-making piece, because that's ultimately what it is, learning how to make good decisions that align with what you want, which is not necessarily something we're taught in school. All right, cool deal. So one of the things I wonder is, you know, we're particularly as immigrants, we are raised with that uh, pursue success to no end narrative. And yet so many people come to this realization that you have. And why does it take that? Why is it that, um, I, I think the, the probably, you know, we were talking about decision making and I, I recently wrote this piece on medium say, saying that this is the greatest lie that you've ever been told. And I said, the greatest lie that we're ever told is that you have to choose from the options that are put in front of you. Mm. And, uh, I, I wonder why we do that and why we reinforce this narrative. Part of me thinks it's because it works for the majority of people. Like nobody would yeah. argue that the results of your life were a disaster because you made these decisions. So I wonder why is it that we make decisions that ultimately end up being so dissatisfying? I mean, there's, there's a few things there, right? All right. So why is it that we make decisions that, that become so misaligned with what we actually want? I think part of it is that we, okay. So one of my my personal rants is, you know, why is it, especially now that I have a two-year-old, why is it that we ask kids so early, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. They don't have the adequate information on the options or what is it that they want? What is it that they enjoy? What is it that they're good at? And so from a very early age, we're, we're locking people into these like you said, existing options, forgetting that, especially in this day and age, the jobs that are going to exist by the time they come of age are not even created yet. And maybe that's what's at the root of this. Before the economy that we're in right now, there were only a handful of choices and a handful of things that you could be. Whereas technology and this economy has enabled an explosion of not only different roles you can take, but also just different ways you can make a living. And we haven't adapted our way of charting our paths forward. Again, like before, when there are limited choices, yes, okay, you just pick one and you go for it. Now, where a lot of the economy is fueled by creativity and innovation, we haven't actually helped people think about how they might chart their way forward by making... Uh, by being intentional about how they evaluate their decisions. Like, um, so back at, at Stanford, when I was studying decision engineering, Ron Howard, who's the father of decision analysis, would talk about how every single decision has three parts. There are always options, objectives, and information. 
And as a society, we don't we don't even teach people that. Like we only talk about the okay, here are the options. Now choose. We don't mm-hmm. talk about how, okay, when we're talking about options, what are the ones we see obviously, but also what other possibilities exist? When we talk about objectives, sometimes we don't even talk about objectives, right? We don't talk about, well, what is it that you want? And here is this tool for how you can evaluate the options against these things that are really important to you and that you care about. And then I also don't think we talk about uncertainty and information that you may need or not need in a decision in a constructive way that people can process. So that decision-making becomes easier. Like, I feel like my personal mission is to be able to, to help people understand like how, how they can view decisions in a way that is much more generative than necessarily just closing doors and picking one. Well, we'll come to all, back to all of that. Having heard my interviews, you know that there's no way I'm <laughs> We're barely scratching the surface, so I definitely want to go um, deeper into all of that. But before we go there, uh, mm-hmm. as somebody who was raised with the sort of uh, you know cultural narrative of success, go to college, go to the best damn college you can go to, not only did you get into one of the best colleges in the country, then you went and got an MBA at Berkeley, which is my alma mater. Mm-hmm. Uh, having kind of you know been funneled through what I, I guess would be effectively the elitist of all you know educational institutions. Uh, how do you think about the way that you're going to educate your own child? Oh, the honest truth. I hope that higher education as it is ex- exists today will be disrupted by the time my son is of college age. So he's two now. We have 16 years to come up with a new, better, different system. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like when I when I think about how I want him to move through the world. I feel like the most important thing is actually possibly not necessarily the things he's going to be learning in school, like reading, writing, math. Those are all okay, nice things that help you do other things. But the biggest thing that I hope he learns is how is it that he can create value for himself and for others? Hmm. And that's it. So, Speaking of, of, of how you create value, uh, one, if you had to go back to Stanford and you were asked to redesign the structure of the education system, what would you change? Oh, I feel like my head is exploding right now because I also I've spent a little bit of time like in, in education. Um, I mean, I, as wonderful as Stanford is of a place, Berkeley too. I, I really hate this like elitist exclusive structure that exists, especially at the college level, uh, because it creates so much stress on, on people who are trying to do like, do all the things that they're supposed to do so that they can attain this end point, but it isn't the end point. Uh, I, I wish that there were ways that we could talk about, like, how is it that we create value for ourselves and for society throughout the entire um, schooling of children mm-hmm. uh, from day one instead of, oh, just follow these steps to get to this endpoint. Just follow these steps to get to this endpoint. Because that's, again, in the world that we live in, we don't know what the end, there is no endpoint, actually. And so why are we teaching kids that that's the way to move through life? 
Well, I think that in my mind, what I what I realized as an adult, which you know now I'm realizing 20 years after graduation, is that life isn't linear, even though right. taught to believe that it is in school. I think the other thing, um, and this will probably piss off any of my Berkeley friends who are <laughs> listening to this, or even Berkeley students, but. The thing that struck me most was, you know, and I, I recognize this in retrospect, I said, for a place that's known for being so damn liberal, it is a hell of a breeding ground for conformity. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, everybody basically works at investment banks and management consulting firms or goes to prestigious grad schools. Like, these are your options. Choose them or, you know, die is kind of the, the narrative. Yeah. And I think it's, to your earlier question, it, then it's no wonder that then like people who have been taught that this is the way to live life arrive at a point where you know, they thought, well, wait a minute, am I sp- aren't I supposed to have made it? Aren't I supposed to have, you know, hit that end point? And they realize the answer is no, because it isn't linear. There is no end point. Yeah. Wow. Um, Let's do this. Let's shift gears. But I have one more question about this. We're talking about the idea of of creation of value. And we currently live in a capitalist society where I think for for a large degree, value is is measured entirely based on how much wealth or how much money you can create. Um, You know, I was writing something that was just sometimes I get in these sort of like rumination narratives. And I was like, yeah, you might have written a book, you know, uh, about the virtues of creating for an audience of one, but your publisher would probably be a hell of a lot happier if it sold to an audience of millions. (laughs) You know, because as far as you're concerned, you're like, they're not in the business of making dreams come true. They're in the business of selling books. That's mm-hmm. the harsh reality of where we live. Um, so I wonder, you know, when you think about value creation in society, you think about the fact that we, as an economic system, primarily use capitalism. How do you think the value creation is going to change with time? Which I realize is a total landmine and rabbit hole of a question. <laughs> okay, again, I think if and this is I'll be honest, this has been part of my struggle with my education decision engineering because it's very much and based on the economic model uh, that, mm. yes, all the things that are all things that are valuable are measurable. And that, I think, is the paradigm that we have to get our heads out of. Um, like, how is it that that we can think about value in ways that you know, are not measured by units of utility? Uh, and I I don't have an answer for, for that. Um, but I do have hope and, and faith that if, if we are, if we continue to commit to not falling into the trap of thinking that money is the end all be all and the only thing worth measuring that we can find a, a path forward. So you mentioned the word faith, and I know earlier you spoke about church, and uh, I wonder what role uh, does faith, religion, and spirituality play in your life as an adult? Oh, um, I feel like I'm a boomerang Catholic. I'll say that. So I was raised in the Catholic tradition, which is very common for Filipinos. And then I I left the church for a while because I was really angry at things that the institutional church was doing and standing for. Um and then I returned, again, because of this faith piece, I think, you know, up until that point when I was executing against the plan, right, because I was good at it, 
I thought that, oh yeah, everything that comes about in my life is due to my own you know, effort, which is a really like, you know, tempting and sexy thing to be able to believe because if things are going well, it's like, oh yeah, I did this. And then I realized how incredibly limiting that is to think that everything that happens is just a product of my effort. Um, and I realized that if, if I wanted to think beyond the things that, you know, like I could see possible, it would require an act of faith. And there have been some things that have happened in my life that um, was kind of like the universe just dropping a bomb on me saying, hey, it's not just all about you. <laughs> Here are some like magically wonderful things that you want and, and never thought possible, uh, but here I'm going to deliver it to you anyway. And I think it was in those moments that I realized, oh, maybe it's not just about me and my effort and there is... Um, something else here at work that I realize the importance of faith. I think also part of this, this work in decision engineering and understanding and transforming how I think about uncertainty and risk has been humbling and has also brought me back to faith. So you've talked about faith in, uh, in moments when good things happen. What about faith in moments when bad things happen? Because I remember going through a really, really, really rough period uh, sometime in 2014. And I met with uh, an old professor from business school and she mentioned the idea of religion. And she said, I wonder, uh, you know, has the possibility of exploring this through a religious lens occurred to you? I said, no, to be honest, it's made me question the existence of God. I mean, I think what, what comes to mind right now for me is something that that I'm going through right now. Like I'm uh I talked about it briefly on on Sarah's podcast, but I'm going through some health things and I have no idea how they're gonna turn out. Doctors can't even tell me how things are going to turn out. And I choose faith. The faith that um I'm not even talking about like the faith that things are going to turn out, but the faith that I, I can move through this and not necessarily that this is happening for a reason, but that there is something greater than myself going on here because of my commitment to, uh, to what's important to me which is to enjoy being in the present. And I think the alternative of not having faith is not consistent with how I want to be experiencing life. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and let's start talking specifically about this idea of decision making. Um, one, you know, what sort of planted uh, the seed for your interest in this particular subject area? And two, can you expand on that decision making framework of options, informations, objectives, and then talk about the role that risk and uncertainty plays in all of those, which I realize the answer to that question could be 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um- Let's see. So what got me interested in decision making at first? Well, to be honest, I kind of fell into it. Uh, I I went into college knowing I wanted to study engineering just because I was good at math and science and I didn't want to become a doctor or a lawyer. And so engineering seemed to be the next safest pick uh, for, again, like (laughs) a person with immigrant parents. And as I was evaluating the different engineering disciplines that were available, uh, one of the things that came up was industrial engineering, which I wasn't familiar with before, but someone told me was the engineering of efficiency, like doing things better, faster, uh, maximizing things, optimizing things, which all sounded really interesting to me. And within that field, there, there was an area of study called decision engineering and Uh, It's really interesting because whenever I tell people that I studied decision engineering at Stanford, the first response is always, whoa, that's a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. (laughs) And then the second response is, wait, so can you teach me how to make better decisions? Because I'm horrible at it. I hate decision making. Uh And uh, I find it really interesting because 
there's there's a lot of I think energy around decisions. Like there's so much um, stuff there. Like and and especially since we're on this podcast, it's interesting because I think the the hangups people have around decisions are the same hangups that keep people from being able to be creative and generative. Like there's this overwhelm there's just like so much going on, so many different things to evaluate and people can feel really lost, like not knowing which way to go or like, where is the compass for being able to find direction? There's a lot of fear of doing it wrong. Um, and again, like having been someone who, who really uh, liked the idea of planning and optimization, you're like, oh, well, decision engineering seems like a really interesting discipline to learn some tools for how, how to deal with that. And so, um, like I talked about before, uh, crux of any decision, there are options, objectives, and information. And uh, some of the key things that this discipline has taught me about each of those things is you know, like you said earlier, we were taught ever since we were little that, oh, decisions are just about choosing from the options that are put in front of you. And one of the, the pieces that comes up in decision engineering is really questioning that. Okay, you may have these options that seem obvious, but what else is there? Like whenever people say, oh, I don't have a choice. Not true. I actually did have a choice. There's probably another option that you just really, really, really didn't like. But it's useful to be able to call out that option and really push yourself to look at what are the things that are not immediately coming to mind because I'll give you a broader consideration set, an ability to make better decisions or a decision that you may not have made otherwise if you're just looking at the obvious. In the, uh, in the objectives piece, again, I don't think we as a society, like give people enough leeway and time to think about, well, what, what are your objectives? And when I talk about objectives, it's, you know, what is it that you want in the outcome? And even going beyond that, okay, of the things that you can think of, the things that you want in your outcome, what is really the things you want versus what your parents have told you you should want or society is telling you you should want? Can you sift through those things? Really, what are the objectives that that matter when we're evaluating these various options. And then there's the information piece. Information being, you know, what is the information that we have on how each one of those options may deliver on the objectives that we have. And this is where, where I feel like I've done the most growth, not actually during the time I was studying decision engineering, but in the time afterwards. Because one thing I'll say is decision engineering is... Um, usually a field reserved for the business world because it's based on economic principles, on measurable things. And I've been unpacking, well, what are some of the tools from this discipline that are applicable to human decision-making? Because we're not robots. And I think going back to um, this information piece, we are never going to have all the information. And that's something that has taken me a lot of time to come to grips with. Like, I'm like, I'm the type of person who loves knowing for the sake of knowing, even if it's not going to change anything. And that was kind of a really interesting concept for me to learn. Information has value uh, if it's going to help you 
make a different decision or change a course of action. If it's not really, then that information doesn't have much value. And like that, that was really um, top of mind for me, like when, when, as I'm going through these health things, because initially, actually, I'll just, I'll just summarize in a nutshell about a year, a year ago, this time last year, I was sitting in the ER in the ICU and a doctor was holding up a picture of an x-ray saying, yeah, so you have this growth in your throat that's not supposed to be there. Uh, we don't know what it is and we won't know until we can operate on you. And of course, immediately I go into freak out mode. Like, ah, what does this be? Oh my gosh. What? Um, and then my training reminded me, wait a minute. Is there anything that you can actually do with that information? Is that information actually going to change anything right now? Except for make you feel bad uh, or incredibly afraid. And so it's been interesting, at least for me, really thinking about, oh, okay, what is the information, especially in this age where information is so readily available, what is the information that we actually need? What is the information that actually makes a difference? And where, where can we keep moving forward without information? Because it may not actually make a difference right now. Like the decision isn't actually to be made right now. And that's the other, other thing. Decisions are not about what we cannot control. They are about what we can and so in that moment of not having any control over what was happening, the one thing I could control was, well, how did I want to process and view the situation? Through a place of fear, through a place of faith. Wow. Uh, so many more questions <laughs> from that. Uh, so I think that the thing that struck me most is we have a framework that's based on economic principles, um, but then you have to deal with the fact that we're human and we're not logical. Um, we're emotional. So why do we make bad decisions and what role do emotions play in those decisions? When is it appropriate for emotions to play a role and when do we, when is it more appropriate not for them not to play a role? Mm. Well, first, I want to want to expand on this piece around bad decisions, because um, what exactly makes for a bad decision, right? Is it when things don't turn out well? And in that case, I, I wouldn't say that that's a bad decision, because what a, a lot of people confound is, or a lot of people think that the quality of a decision is the same as the quality of an outcome. Where as that's not actually true. So for example, um, okay, it's really cloudy in the Bay Area today. And it, it almost looks like it could rain. Let's say that I look up a, a weather report and it says mm, 15 to 20% chance of rain. And I'm deciding whether or not to take my son out to the park. And because 15 to 20%, not that high, I go to the park. And then it starts raining. Was that a bad decision? I mean, I didn't decide for it to rain. I just made a decision given the information that I had. 
And so I think a lot of people feel like, oh my gosh, I made this bad decision where they may not have actually made a bad decision. It may just have been that the things outside of their control turned out in a way that they didn't quite like. And so I think even first, before we start talking about, you know, bad decisions, why we make bad decisions, we should look at, you know, how are we defining the quality of a decision? Are we falling into this trap of thinking that, oh, the quality of the outcome directly reflects the quality of the decision? Or are we seeing that they're actually distinct from one another? Wow. So you framed that in the example of, uh, you know, forgetting an umbrella and having it rain. But what about when the stakes are a lot higher? Um, when it's potentially uh, an intimate relationship or a significant investment in your business, um, in those cases, you know, I think that it, it becomes, like you said, very easy to conflate the quality of the decision with the quality of the outcome. Because if you make a substantial investment and you lose it, you can say, "Well, that was a shitty decision." Mm. I'd say it's a shitty outcome, but also I think you know we we place a lot. I think a lot of people have this anxiety around decision-making because we also think that there's just one. We're going to make this one decision and and then that's it. And then our, the rest of our lives are based on that decision. And we forget that, okay, so things didn't turn out likely due to some kind of like resolution of uh, an uncertainty that we could not have known in advance anyway. Whenever, remember those three parts of any decision, the you know, your options, objectives, the information you have on the two intersect, whenever any of those change, you have an opportunity to make a new decision. And I think we forget that. So let's say that the outcome is not to your liking. Um, you know, it could be a failure of some sort. It could be a relationship that doesn't work. And so often I, I think the the sort of tendency at that moment is is to basically be consumed by grief or whatever it is. Like you kind of go, at least for me, I have a tendency to go into these sort of spirals. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wonder, you know, back to that question of, of how do we know when emotion is an appropriate uh has an appropriate place in our decisions and are there places where your emotion should be completely left out of a decision and it should be completely objective or is that even humanly possible? So I would say it's, it's not humanly possible to keep emotions out of it, but I do think we can get more curious about what is, where are the emotions coming from? And so, you know, some of the tools that I use from decision engineering are useful for being able to just like get everything that's in our heads on paper so that you can just see what's going on. And then if emotions come up, at least having things on paper, having things somewhere where you can look at things and then comparing and contrasting them to what's going on emotionally usually helps my clients uncover, well, what is the emotion there really? Like is, is the fear really coming from, um, like the fact that this may not turn out good or is the fear coming from just simply that this may not have been done before. Again, I, th I think another thing that a lot of people confuse is uncertainty and risk. Risk is more of the possibility of bad things that will happen. Whereas uncertainty is simply the possibility of things that we don't anticipate or we don't know will happen happening. Like I remember three years ago, I 
I don't know. So I, I might go on a tangent here, but like I said, I'm very much, or historically have been very much a planner. Like I'm a risk averse person. Uh, and so when people are just like, oh, you're an entrepreneur, you're so risk taking. No, I'm a risk averse person, but I'm willing to take calculated risks or at least evaluate uncertainties for what they are. And I think one of the practices that helped me do that was um, <laughs> playing travel roulette three years ago. So usually I'm one of those people who totally like needs to have a plan, plan out the entire itinerary whenever we go traveling. And my husband totally broke me of that habit because he's a very, very different person. He's more in the moment, go with the flow, which was crazy making when we were first dating. Um, I'm learning to be more of that. And, and one of the things that I realized would be a good practice for myself is really leaning into dealing with uncertainty um, and viewing uncertainty for what it is and not like always thinking that it's about the risk of bad things happening. And what really solidified that for me was playing travel roulette. I don't know if you've heard about this before. Travel roulette is basically when you pack a bag, you go to the airport without a destination in mind. And upon arrival at the airport, you book a ticket for under 500 bucks and you go. And I remember having a lot of anxiety, but I figured, you know, this um, this would be a good thing. Even if things turn out bad, it'd be good for developing resilience and doing this, like being in the moment and roll with things thing that my husband does. And that trip turned out way better than anything I could have ever planned. And that's when I realized, you know, we, we get into this habit of, you know, this uh, like, reaction of fear whenever uncertainty comes up because we're so conditioned to fear the bad things that may happen that we forget that uncertainty is also the possibility of wonderful things happening. So anyways, backwards tracking, that was a really long tangent. Uh, but your original question was you know, emotion. What, when is it appropriate for them to play into our decision-making and when is it not appropriate? I mean, uh, as humans, it's impossible to extract emotion or get rid of emotion entirely. I think of emotion as just another data point. But we shouldn't react to the emotion simply, oh, fear, bad, but really take the time to get curious about where is it really coming from. Yeah, I guess one other question uh, that came up for me as you were, were talking about that and the travel roulette. So, so much of, of what we do when we make decisions is about prediction of a future outcome. Um, and yet, I can't tell you the number of people who've come back to me over and over again on this show and talked about the role that presence plays in our well-being and how much happier we are when we're present. And I think I wrote this somewhere in an article. I said, you know, anxiety is basically trying to control what you can't mm. control. Depression is trying to change what you can't change. Uh, how do you balance that need to be present with the ability to make decisions that will have a positive impact on your future? Because I can make short-term decisions that potentially could have long-term costs and vice versa. I think it's it's possible – or when I think about decision-making, it's an act of being able to exercise your power of choice in a way that aligns with what you want, right? Or what's most important to you. 
And I think it's possible to be in the present and at the same time envision the future. I know that sounds like totally <laughs> uh, like opposed, but I, I think that's um, being able to acknowledge that that both are possible to be in the present and also have that hope for the future is kind of the key to being happy, right? Because if we're always focused on the future, we don't get to enjoy the present. But if we're not, if we're always focused on the present, we may not make good decisions for the future. I don't think I answered your question at all because you asked very like deep, big questions, but that's just what came to mind. No, I think you did. I mean, it, yeah. Wow. Uh, as far as what you're teaching, well, I guess, I mean, with a two-year-old, I'm guessing he's not making many decisions, but uh, a lot of parents are listening to this. What do you think that they should be teaching their kids about decision-making as somebody who has this perspective? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about a time a couple of years ago, I was hanging out with uh, my husband's niece and we were playing a card game and um, she had to decide which one of the cards she was going to put down on the deck. And of course, because she didn't know what we, what cards we had, she didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I could see on her little face, she was like eight years old. Just that little like wrinkle between the the eyebrows and just like the wrinkles in her forehead. She was stressing out so much about this decision. And I remember saying, Sasha, just make the best decision you can with the information you have now. She took a deep breath and chose. And I think that's that's the thing, like focusing on the piece that we can control and acknowledging the part that we don't and can't control is I think the most important lesson to be teaching, especially kids, because otherwise it can be so stressful, right? Mm -hmm. I think for me, I particularly see it when it comes to creative work, particularly with this last book and the the message of it, you know, largely being that idea that you really don't have a lot of control over how people will respond to your creative work. But I think what's, what's great about you and some of the work that you've put out there is focusing on that process, right? Like focus on what is it that you can control? Well, I can write a thousand words every day. I don't know what's going to come out necessarily. I don't know how people will respond to it. But that's the piece that I can control and be at peace with. Like, I think that's been a really empowering message for you to share with people. Wow. Uh, I can see why Sarah referred to you as a guest. So I have one last question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <sighs> I think... You know, someone who's unmistakable is someone someone who chooses to exercise their agency in the world. Like they're choosing to use this piece that they can't control. Um, Like someone who, instead of letting the world happen to them, chooses to make the world happen, at least the piece of the world that they can make happen. I think it's someone who's developed that resilience to surf what they cannot control 
And in the times that matter most, identify what it is that they can control and keep choosing what is important to them every single day. Because ultimately, decisions don't have to be hard, especially if we can develop the discipline of listening deeply to ourselves and cultivate the courage to exercise our power of choice where we can. We can do anything. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to a really insightful conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything uh, that you're Yeah, up to? they can find me at michelleflorendo.com, or I'll say the only social media <laughs> uh, channel that I tend to be on is on LinkedIn, so they can follow me there as well. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. 
The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.